This is the European edition of Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. We bring you the European unicorns, startups, founders, regulators and leaders innovating the rapidly evolving fintech scene today. A truly localized podcast with both English and local language content with some of the world's most well-known hosts and influencers in the fintech sector globally. Join us every week as we explore what makes the European Union a phenomenal proving ground for many of the fastest-growing fintech plays in the world today. Okay, let's roll. Welcome to Breaking Banks Europe. This is the episode 78, and I'm Paolo Cironi, your host today. The topic of this 78th episode is fintech innovation, at the intersection between the wealth of families and the needs of entrepreneurs. Today, I'm pleased to have two wonderful guests. The first one is Matteo Novelli from Luxembourg, and the second, after the break, is Roberto Nicastro. We are going to focus on the wealth of families and how technology is changing family office in the first half of the show, and then we'll deep dive on the other side of the moon, the problem of the small entrepreneurs and how technology can also help them to achieve their goals. But let me start with the show today and introduce to you Matteo Novelli. Matteo, welcome on Breaking Banks Europe. Thank you. Good morning to everyone. Matteo, a quick introduction about yourself and your role in the game of finance. Yeah, I'm the managing director of the Borletti Group, which is a family office and privately owned investment group, which is controlled by two Italian families. Uh, what we do is that we um, invest across all markets and all asset classes, uh, both through private equity, um, real estate, listed equities, and um, any type of sector uh, on a global scale. Uh, talking more about myself, I'm working on the financial markets since more than 20 years. I've been working both on the sell side and buy side, on investment side uh, with banks and uh, investment funds. And I joined Borletti Group um, in 2013, where we developed all the investment strategy. So there is a family office. Family office is about uh, money and relationship. Where is the technology in the equation? <laughs> That's a good question, because family offices are basically, um, I would say, the, the first uh, element uh, to build a family office is trust. Uh, so when a family wants to build a family office, they first look at who do they trust and who are the people that can help them to, to, to build the family office, which is something which is it's, it's a strange animal if you want a family office, because uh, you take 10 family offices and they may all be different. Uh, so every family has their own uh, desires, has their own targets. So they need to find the right people to, 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 um, uh, to help them to build this family office. So uh, it's, it, the first thing is the people contact. The first thing is people trust. Uh, and then technology, uh, it's only coming now. Uh, in some parts of the family offices. But my feeling is that even if technology is spreading everywhere and, and last year has been accelerated again, uh, this trend, uh, family offices won't be on the forefront of, of this technology uh, implementation because they still need this human relationship and this will, will remain key in the future. 
However, we can see some areas in the, in the business of family offices related to investment, related to reporting, related to monitoring where technology is starting to, to, be, to be present. So, Matteo, let's say in today's show, we discuss uh, two types of markets. Uh, the one of uh, the wealthy families with you, and then with Roberto Nicastro, we'll discuss uh, the small entrepreneurs. Now, let's say that uh, in the second half, we might talk also about how you can onboard uh, a new client, uh, total and digital. And then you may need to plug your relationship at some point, but the starting point can be fully digital. What you're telling me is that in the family office space, the first touch point might well be human. But technology might help after the relationship is established to improve the experience or to facilitate the conversation and the decision-making. Is that a fair summary of what you just said? Yeah, that's, that's correct. Exactly. Um, the first contact and the main contact remain human. So it's um, I see today very... Uh, unlikely to um, to um, build a family office only on technology without really meeting and knowing the, the families behind. Uh, that said, when you have the trust of the family and when you start working with the family, uh, you have to know that you work on many different fronts. So you have investments, you manage family properties, uh, you, you may uh, take care of uh, impact investing or philanthropy, etc. So it, it's a very wide menu of activity that you have to manage. And of course, uh, managing that only with, with, with people and Excel files, it starts to become quite complex. <laughs> so technology is certainly helping. And, and, and we, um, we started to use and you start to see in the industry many um, softwares and platforms or or apps that can help you to communicate with the family monitor the investments um, give them uh, reporting to the family which are well built and 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 well designed or uh, what you start to see now uh, is that one typical um, I would say, uh, one typical activity of family offices is to to work with other family offices. Not not that we don't want to work with banks. I mean, I know your 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 your, your um, uh, program is breaking banks, but uh, uh, banks are still useful for family offices. But uh, family offices want to be uh, independent from banks uh, more than a classic affluent client who is still relying on the bank. So they want to develop many things on their side and they want to work directly with other families. So in this part of the, of the business where you need to connect with other families, you need to uh, exchange ideas and opportunities. Um, of course, again, the first contact may be human, but then uh, you have platforms that help you to share ideas, investments, opportunities, etc. So this is this is something which is really spreading now, and and uh, we believe is very useful. Okay, so Matteo, um, as part of my literature uh, for the last uh, ten years, I focused a lot on the institutionalization of the wealth management relationship, understanding that uh, banks, especially in the Western world, uh, are facing the problem of uh, very low margins on the interest rate side, and therefore they're all moving towards the fee-based business. But in that business, uh, the products are commoditizing, so they need to transform somehow into better relationship shops. In a sense, it's being inspired by the family office trying to 
institutionalize, so industrialize, if you like, that relationship. And that we see it across the board, like Goldman Sachs is making this attempt, also UBS is lowering the entry point to capture a big market. But there will always be a segment where the complexity of the conversation, if you like, requires more human insertion. But however, that one can also be facilitated and supported by technology. You mentioned Excel, remember, when I met Jean Brunel many years ago, you know, he's the author of the gold based wealth management. I've been writing a lot on gold based investing. And at the uh, CFA conference in Frankfurt, he said, Well, you know, family offices are doing this and that. The problem is that they all use Excel. There's no technology to help them. And I raised the hand saying, Hey, hold on a second. Have you heard about fintech innovation? So there are ways where the family office representative can be supported to deliver a better experience to the family because I presume the families are also starting to demand more digital interaction with their family offices or I'm mistaken. No, that's right. That's correct. I think that uh, also you need to make um, differences between family offices. Of course, um, I mean, every family office, it's a, it's a, an image of the family that it represents. Um, so, of course, now you have many new family offices coming from uh, the U.S. And, and China who are, um, I mean, built by uh, technology entrepreneurs. So, of course, those family offices are much more on the forefront of technology and they are much more at ease putting technology at every step of their uh, process. Uh, in Europe, it's a bit different because uh, many of European family offices like ours, for example, are um, family office uh, built by, I would call traditional families, which are multi-generational uh, industrial European families. And those families are, um, I would say, less used to technology and more linked to traditional and human and, and social uh, relationships. Um, that said, I, I, I can say that over the last two, three years, and, and the COVID crisis was an accelerator in that sense, everyone realized that technology was there and was useful and was uh, even something that you cannot uh, avoid anymore. So this year, we all spoke with uh, um Zoom, like we're doing today, uh, we all got connected by email, LinkedIn, we, we, we got in touch through platforms, etc. And uh, also families, they realize that uh, not only technology is useful, but technology has a huge potential uh, to grow and to develop further business. So both on the investment side, so many, many family offices which were, were not looking at these uh, um, like, like for example, at venture capital, this year they moved and they started looking at venture capital because they say, wow, technology will be there, we need to adapt. And on the other hand, they started, even all people in the families were, who were used to, to come and, and, and hold your hand and, and sit in front of you with a coffee, now they say, oh, cool, I, I, call, I Zoom you and uh, we call... 20 minutes, we speak 20 minutes and then it's fine, you know. So there, there's a real revolution. Uh, and I think that, uh, of course, technology will be in family offices in like, like everywhere else. Well, what I'm also seeing is that um, uh, the um, squeeze uh, of margins uh, is affecting everybody, also the family office with negative interest rates in the Western world. Uh, 
and a lot of products uh, which are fairly commoditized um, as a classes uh, are, I feel like, very homogeneous these days. So there is a necessity to do two things. One maybe is looking at more alternative and illiquid uh, investment opportunities. There is the space for family offices to excel, but also look outside the investment management circle to scout a different type of uh, value that can be, um, if you like, shared with the family. So some are looking at the old lifestyle, even projects like uh, building a yacht can be, if you like, uh, supported by technology so that the family office becomes like a project manager for uh, a variety of different purposes uh, for these families. And, and that is where also technology is inserting itself um, into the relationship to help the family office add more to the portfolio compared to what the family office could do in the past. But then you mentioned uh, a key word uh, before, you said platform. So it is uh, a fact that the platforms are uh, popping up here and there or attempts to build platform to further disintermediate the relationship. So basically is the attempt to create um, an affluent level entry point for the family office uh, in the belief that if you can make it there, you can also make it everywhere and your continuum of the wealth. So do you believe this is um, a fair competition, a strong competition, or would be relegated to a certain segment of uh, the wealth spectrum? No, I think, um, I mean, platform can, can, can have different uses. As you say, what we see today, we have platforms um, like, for example, Titan Bay, Moonfair. These are platforms, as you said, uh, everyone, I mean, family offices like banks, like even affluent clients are looking more towards private investments because you said like standard plain vanilla investments like bonds and and equities, even if equities did very well over the last 18 months, um, these start to be a bit, uh, I mean, you have less return and you have everyone is there. So if you want to do something different, if you want to, to make more money or to, to have expectations of better returns, you need to go in niches like private markets. Uh, so first, this is something which was not accessible to everyone. So uh, one of the first objective of this platform is to make these markets and this product accessible to a, a larger share of investors. So uh, it, you think about a private equity fund or a venture capital fund, usual the, the, the minimum entry ticket is 1 million to 10 million. So not everyone, of course, can afford that, especially if you want to diversify your portfolio. And so those platforms are basically acting as aggregator um, and, and promoting this product to a, a, a smaller uh, group, I mean, a bigger group of smaller clients. So this is one of the, uh, of the, of the aims. And from, from the, this part of the business is not really a menace for the family office because it's a question of size. Family offices were already uh, accessing those products and they, they may rely on the platform to... Um, to screen and to analyze, but finally they will probably invest directly with the fund if they have a critical size. Um, the second, the second uh, advantage of the platform is that uh, when you are investing in private markets, as you know, uh, regulation is getting tougher and tougher and uh, administration, KYC and paperwork, it's, it's huge. So where this platform can help 
with technology, it's simplifying all this process of onboarding of clients, monitoring of clients, reporting to clients, etc., which is also making possible for the funds to manage a larger uh, base of clients. Because one of the reasons why the most successful funds were putting very high uh, minimum um, investments was because basically they didn't want to manage 2,000 clients. They wanted to have direct relationship with few selected clients. Also because it's, it's time consuming and it's costly. So if you simplify all this process, uh, you can extend this product to a larger base. You also mentioned venture capital. Uh, so, Matteo, I don't want to ask you about the, your portfolio, of course, but you might be talking to many family offices that do similar job to yours. And I had the opportunity to deal with the family offices myself. What I discovered in the last uh, two, three years is that quite a few were approaching me saying, we typically do like an institutional type of uh, investment management uh, activity. So looking at the regulated markets, we do club deals uh, for these families. They typically don't invest into startups uh, or early stage. Uh, so they look for different businesses that usually are very close to the experience of their families. Like if your family works in a certain industrial sector, so they look for opportunities there because they understand the business. But now there is more and more request about uh, how can families understand uh, investments in technology companies, which is sometimes for many esoteric. You've got all of these pieces of innovation, blockchain, artificial intelligence. So do you see effectively a trend uh, for family offices uh, to become more proactive uh, in the venture capital scene uh, and more systematic in the way they, they approach the problem of investing in fintech? Yes, of course. The answer is definitely yes. Uh, what you said is totally right. And it's, again, the example of our family office. So we, we started uh, investing in direct deals, uh, private equity, which were really focused on uh, the lifestyle sector. So it was retail, luxury, fashion, and, and consumer goods, because this was the background of the family and they were um, sure and they were uh, confident that they could understand those businesses. And so they, they had a feeling that they were taking a, a lower risk in investing in those businesses that they knew rather than uh, pharma or technologies. That said, uh, as you said, I mean, technology is everywhere. We see we see that technology is disrupting all the businesses and even the oldest businesses like, like the family office. And so you cannot avoid being there. That said, you, you don't have the skills. So you, this is why you need to rely on external experts. And, and this may be funds or maybe specialized advisors or maybe in some cases platforms that can use they can they can help you to approach and to and to understand those products. So the the, the trend is there. Again, it has been accelerated um, this year, and uh, we 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 started maybe um, two three years ago in, in 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 venture, which is already very late because I in my past career I was been I mean I've been working on. Um, in, in technology and the telecom sector already when I was an analyst in, in, in the early 2000s. And so I, I, I'm still in contact with many entrepreneurs that, that have been very successful in the, in the technology space. So I was trying to, 
to educate the family for, for many years to say, look, this is the future. We need to move there. At least not the whole portfolio, but you need to have a leg in, in this space. And it, it took some time. So now we are starting to, to, to be there. Uh, it's never too late. I think that the, the many more innovation will come in the future. Um, so the trend is there. And even for the oldest family offices, uh, they cannot, they will not be able to avoid it anymore. So Matteo, I have a last question before I call for a little break and we move into the second section of the show. And the question is the following. Do families look for Bitcoins or Dogecoins? <laughs> this is the big question. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. Um, actually, this is even further uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> the fintech and, and, and venture space. Of course, we have been looking at it. Personally, uh, as a family office, as of today, we haven't invested. Um, we have been looking and, and speaking to uh, some funds uh, specialized on blockchain, which is very different from Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. That's, uh, so we believe that blockchain, again, it's one piece of technology and innovation that will be there to shape the future. So this is definitely something that we want to look at. Um, Bitcoin uh, or, or other cryptocurrencies, this is still a little bit controversy. It's, uh, of course, the, it's, it's a big trend. And this year we have been, uh, I mean, again, it showed that it's becoming a, a, a real asset class, or if you can call it like this, or, or, a, or a new currency. And you started to see big companies uh, trying to, 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 to take a piece of that. However, um, where I struggle a little bit, uh, if I can understand that uh, Bitcoin can give, uh, can be perceived a little bit like the new gold and, and in the investing uh, space, gold has always been a sort of protection uh, for uh, in case of market crash, and in case of high inflation, because basically uh, when prices are going up, gold is going up. And when market is crashing, gold is a bit like the safe haven. So Bitcoin is trying to take this place. But um, the point is that it's very difficult to see what is the real value behind. So how can you say it's worth uh, 3,000, 5,000, or now like 50,000. And, and there's no maths and there's no flows behind. And so it's really a question of, um, you know, uh, offer and demand. And this was really the trend this year. Um, so it remained quite speculative. And from a really uh, currency point of view, so it's, it's still quite difficult to, to do transaction and, and deals or payments with Bitcoin due to this very high volatility. So, Matteo, thank you very much for this conversation and uh, for having joined us uh, on Breaking Banks uh, Europe. We discussed together the sweet problems of the wealthy. And in the second half of the show, we will discuss the serious issues of those that still want to make it happen and see how fintech innovation can help them too. So, I invite everybody to stay with us. We have a very short break and we're back in a few seconds. Ciao, Matteo. Ciao Paolo, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. 
the FTS Group builds innovation ecosystems. We engage incumbents, investors, entrepreneurs, technology partners and regulators to build trusted and connected fintech tribes around the world. We firmly believe that innovation in financial services will truly improve people's lives. Learn more on ftsgroup.eu. Welcome back to the second alpha of Breaking Banks Europe. This is the 78th episode, and we are talking about fintech innovation at the intersection between the wealth of families and the needs of entrepreneurs. In the second half of the show, I'm very pleased to introduce you to Roberto Nicastro. Roberto is, according to his LinkedIn profile, a banker, fintech, and private equity, and is actually the president and co-founder of IDEXA, that is a fintech solution for entrepreneurs. Roberto, welcome to Breaking Banks Europe. Thanks very much for the invitation. It's a pleasure. So, Roberto, first of all, your LinkedIn profile may be curious. Can you just spell a few words for our audience about you being a banker, a fintech, and private equity? <laughs> right. You're, you're quite right. Maybe it's a result of my age, uh, in a sense that I've been doing banking for uh, uh, almost uh, uh, 30 years um, within uh, companies like Salomon Brothers, Unicredit. I've been also with McKinsey doing banking. Um, more recently, uh, I have decided to try and focus on things uh, I believed uh, 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 did have, uh, do have uh, uh, quite a lot of potential and also uh, uh, a chance, uh, I would say, also to have fun in the work. On one side, this is private equity. Uh, uh, an area I was always very interested for, 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 for many, many years uh, that I'm doing on some aspect uh, uh, closer to traditional banking, um, like also restructuring and so on. On the other end, uh, there's fintech. Um, and for somebody that uh, 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 is really uh, passionate about, about retail banking, uh, fintech is a fantastic challenge. It's really something that is uh, giving... Uh, a, a, a really great opportunity to transform deeply the way in which banking is done. So uh, uh, after I left uh, Unicredit, I decided first uh, as an angel investor uh, to invest in a few fintech companies and more recently with uh, a, a couple of former colleagues and some other uh, people, we've decided to found a company called IDEXA, which is entirely focused on small business banking, leveraging on, uh, on one side some experience we had in the past, but on the other side on the really terrific opportunities that technology gives you to change the value proposition for customers. So IDEXA is your uh, fintech uh, innovation company. Is this uh, a bank? Is this uh, a solution provider? What is it? Uh, sure. Um, uh, IDEXA uh, was born as a, a solution provider uh, entirely uh, focused and dedicated to small businesses, really sole traders and small companies up to 10 million euro of turnover. Uh, it's, ac it's actually uh, uh, already holds uh, a so-called 106 uh, uh, banking license, but uh, uh, is aiming uh, to receive soon a full uh, uh, banking license. And maybe later on we can elaborate a little bit why we think it's, it's very, very important to have a banking license. Um, but um, uh, uh, the value proposition which uh, IDEX is built Mm -hmm. uh, starts uh, from the uh, consideration that uh, on one side, uh, small businesses uh, do account for a, a really large stake uh, of any economy, and uh, we are based in Italy, 
And as far as Italy is concerned, concern, Italy is a country of small businesses, really small entrepreneurs, account for over half of Italy's GDP. There are 7 million operators. They account for over half of new job creation. So they're really very important for the growth of the economy. On the other end, this is a player that traditionally feels a bit neglected by traditional banks, being a little bit in the intersection between the corporate business and the retail business. And having uh, some needs uh, on, or, or that are more corporate, some needs that are more private. Um, and uh, uh, within this frame, uh, maybe the biggest need uh, uh, we identify uh, is the need of uh, uh, not wasting too much time in the banking and financial service uh, uh, interaction. Um, entrepreneurs uh, are overwhelmed daily by thousands of things to do on everything. Um, and uh, in fact, I think one of the worst aspects for them is to have to spend uh, a really long amount of time to ask for credit, to establish a current account, uh, to interact with the banking provider. So we decided to create IDEXA with the mission number one of saving time for the entrepreneurs. So, um, Roberto, I remember when I was working in capital markets, a friend of mine used to tell me a swap is a swap is a swap. Right, so you can make so much innovation around that, but it's always a swap. So a loan is a loan is a loan. The value is not in the loan itself. Maybe the value is somewhere else, like in the way you get to the loan. So how would you define uh, um, the way technology, at least in your experience with Edexa, can improve the value proposition beyond the product itself? You're absolutely right. Uh, also, a loan is a loan and is a loan. Uh, having said this, uh, um, uh, we know that uh, fintech often makes a difference in terms of UX uh, and uh, uh, a, the customer experience, the UX that is associated with receiving a loan in a way or the other can really make a huge difference. I make a very concrete example. IDEXA is starting by offering an unsecured 12-month loan. The main difference today is that uh, uh, the customer receives the credit answer, the credit feedback in 10 minutes, and without any paper, paperwork. Uh, the uh, traditional way to get a loan uh, by a small business uh, uh, is instead to have to go through a quite substantial uh, paper bureaucracy and typically receive the answer within three to six weeks. Uh, yes, it's the same loan. Uh, but if you need to make an investment tomorrow, if you need to pay taxes, if you have a, a special uh, um, outflow need within the next uh, two weeks, uh, having a loan now or knowing if you can get a loan now or not, uh, it's a completely different loan, uh, mm -hmm. unlike uh, what we were saying before. And so uh, that's uh, uh, something that uh, uh, IDEX is completely focused on. Clearly, technology allows you to achieve this type of result, uh, uh, and this is something that was completely unheard of uh, within, let's say, more traditional uh, uh, business model. So you said something relevant before that uh, IDEXA and uh, your mindset plays at the intersection between the retail and small business. Now, at the intersection of things, uh, there's always a lot of value that can be discovered or unveiled. Now, 
I guess the issue here is that uh, on the one side, uh, the retail market tends to be a bit commoditized, uh, but on the other side, we need to build uh, a personalization and the entrepreneurs uh, need to be respected in their journey to entrepreneurship, which is very complex and difficult sometimes, right? So it, they require conversations, they require thinking, they may require relationships. So now at this intersection between retail uh, and small businesses, uh, where does the fintech play in terms of uh, facilitating the relationship between uh, the providers and uh, the consumers of financial services? Um, uh, we believe that uh, you have to be very crisp in understanding where uh, artificial intelligence can make uh, an enormous difference uh, and where instead it could be useful to have also a little bit of physical interaction. And uh, uh, on top of being crisp, it's quite important ultimately uh, to uh, leave the customer a freedom of choice within this, this concept. So um, uh, within Adexa, for instance, uh, we are leveraging uh, very, very substantially on artificial intelligence when it comes to scoring in the awareness that uh, if you want to receive a loan uh, in, in, in minutes, well, then you have to uh, uh, accept uh, that uh, the evaluation will be made on um, an enormous amount of information that is gathered in uh, uh, really uh, seconds, in a way, and that uh, there is uh, behind uh, an uh, artificial intelligence-powered uh, algorithm can, that can make uh, the, uh, uh, the choice. Having said this, uh, we also allow the customers, uh, if they want, to have the interaction by video uh, with a business banker. Again, in the awareness that uh, the degree of uh, digital comfort that a small business uh, uh, customer may have uh, could be very different from customer to customer. And frankly, today, and here we have to say that COVID has brought uh, a, a, um, a higher uh, availability of customers to interact also by video than in the past. Uh, um, all of these allows effectively a good combination of uh, pure digital, pure artificial intelligence driven uh, interaction, and also uh, uh, the personal one. We all know that uh, the more uh, complex is a transaction, the easier uh, is to have also a person in front. And we really allow the, the customer to have both. So in essence, it's not about disintermediating fully the relationships, but taking the frictions away from those relationships where the person-to-person -person focuses, where there is effectively value in that conversation, and the rest can be more automated and streamlined using digital access. And it is true, the pandemic brought uh, more digital adaptation in the consumers, so sort of virtual proximity. And artificial intelligence uh, is uh, the technology mm -hmm. that... Uh, enables that to be orchestrated. However, AI um, is not all gold, all the glitters. Uh, needs to be transparent, uh, robust, uh, and explainable. So how does a small company like IDEXA faces the challenges of uh, focusing on explicability and transparency? So what is your, your, your mindset and experience here? Um, I, I, I think you said it very correctly. Um, uh, you have to uh, strive uh, to be as, uh, 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 as smooth, uh, as frictionless as possible. And uh, uh, one of the challenges in using artificial intelligence uh, is uh, to provide uh, so-called explainability. Mm -hmm. 
In fact, uh, uh, the algorithm that is behind the credit decision is an algorithm that combines a number of things. It combines uh, the financial of the company, the track record of the company and of the entrepreneur, uh, the financial flows that the PSD2 and open banking allow you to access, uh, as well as uh, it combines uh, the G digital footprint that you can find either on the small business or on the person. All of these combined uh, arise to take the, the credit decision. Uh, having said this, uh, uh, albeit uh, um, it may, uh, uh, there can be a temptation to put all of these within a black box that takes out uh, the number, the yes or no. Uh, that type of approach uh, is completely unacceptable if we think uh, uh, not only for uh, a board of a company uh, that is taking responsibility, not only for the regulators that might supervise it, but ultimately it is completely unacceptable for the customer because it would generate, uh, instead of uh, a, a smooth transaction where one uh, receives the decision and uh, understands also how it can do better, uh, in fact, it just receives a, a, a black and white and yes and no, there is a problem. What we are doing is uh, to work on the so-called explainability of the decision, which means uh, identifying quite in detail which are the factors that have more contributed to the actual decision and leveraging on that, being able to explain uh, to the customer why the decision is going in a direction or the other, uh, as well as uh, to be capable to explain on a portfolio basis how decision-making is taken, uh, having in mind uh, as internal customer on one side the board, on the other side uh, uh, the regulator. So I believe that explainability is uh, a, a very, very important and crucial challenge uh, for the development and deployment of artificial intelligence in banking. And this is indeed, uh, I take the chance to remind the audience of Breaking Banks Europe and Beyond that uh, IEEE, I just released uh, a playbook uh, titled Trusted Data and AI in Financial Services. It's a very interesting playbook and I participated as a BM because it talks about uh, how to structure and standardize the process of uh, creating uh, artificial intelligence driven solutions in a way that uh, you remain robust, transparent and explicable with a special dedication of financial services. So I invite everybody to go to the IEEE, which is an international standard industry body website and download the playbook because it can provide an interesting mindset to face a new barrage of regulation. The European Union recently announced the new proposal for a regulation on artificial intelligence, which is due in the next couple of years. So the sooner we think about transparency, robustness and explicability, the sooner we make sure that the innovation we bring into the economy is sustainable and can endure in order to create value for the society. Now, uh, talking about regulation, we talk about the banking license. It is a, a, a big topic. Uh, uh, it has been a big topic in the last year. Uh, um, if uh, new banks uh, or uh, new players have to own a banking license or not. So is that an aggravation? Do you lose uh, your capability of remaining nimble because of that? You just said that you have one of the six. You are intending to have more. What is your rationale behind it? Um, the rationale uh, uh, is based on a few considerations. Uh, first of all, uh, uh, it's almost a, a, a philosophical thought or a strategic thinking, but um, we do believe that uh, uh, once a fintech uh, is uh, uh, um, working with consumers, uh, with depositors, with small businesses, 
and uh, uh, has uh, to do with uh, uh, either uh, uh, deposits or lending, uh, all of that may generate over time uh, a, a systemic risk. And if there is a systemic risk, sooner rather than later, you will see regulation arriving. I think payments uh, might be in a slightly different chapter, so not necessarily on payments. Uh, 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 for sure, a systemic risk, even if uh, things need to be still understood fully. But when it comes to deposit and lending, uh, systemic risk uh, might be there. Uh, so uh, um, our forecast is that uh, uh, lending and deposit taking uh, uh, fintech initiatives will uh, increasingly come uh, under uh, uh, a supervision and regulatory umbrella. So we decided, having in mind uh, this, this future, Let's play regulated from day zero. On top of that is our benefits, obviously, and there are also costs, and we'll speak about them in a, in a moment. Because um, uh, uh, opening up a current account, albeit it is possible to do it without a banking license, and we know there are, uh, 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 there are many wallets around, but if you want to put together a current account uh, uh, and a loan and a deposit, then a banking license obviously makes it uh, simpler at that point in time. Uh, then uh, uh, liquidity and funding is something quite important. And we all know that uh, uh, the market uh, over time uh, has cycles. There are periods in which uh, wholesale funding, like, like today, is plentiful. Mm, I mean, there are oceans of liquidity available, uh, but it's not, it has not always been like this. Mm -hmm. And we expect also in the future to change. If you have also retail deposits, you have a more solid uh, uh, funding base uh, and you can be in a position to uh, uh, always be ready to uh, uh, lend uh, to your customer. Last, uh, for small businesses, uh, uh, being a remote player is something quite new. Uh, uh, so we thought that uh, at least uh, uh, providing the small business customer the feeling that it has a bank in front uh, helps a bit also in terms of marketing and his understanding of, the, of, the, of uh, how the player. Uh, you're absolutely right in pointing out that it doesn't come for free, because clearly the regulation uh, uh, that uh, uh, are attached to a banking license uh, are, uh, are tighter, um, and uh, there are things that, in any case, in my view, you would have to do the moment in which you have uh, uh, um, a lending activity. So I don't really think that there's much of a difference in being regulated or not when it comes to, let's say, uh, uh, the risk management, in a sense that you have to do it anyway. Uh, when it comes to some other aspect, let's say the compliance side and so on, the governance side and so on, clearly uh, you have some, some more cost. Uh, however, once again, uh, I think that uh, there is a value in, uh, uh, let's say, being also, uh, um, I would say, not only digitally native, but also uh, 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 native in the regulation. Because from day zero, you start and develop things in a way that tries to strike uh, the best balance between being, again, supervised and regulated and being uh, a, a new operator. Last, um, I think it's also quite important uh, to uh, uh, work and leverage on the availability of regulators uh, to consider that uh, um, once you have a fintech world and you would want to put that under some degree of control, you must also uh, uh, discuss a bit the level of regulation 
For instance, the use of sandboxes is quite important, but in general, there is the expectation that regulators will also move in the direction of being a bit more flexible. Roberto, it's always a pleasure to listen to you. You are an entrepreneur with experience. And I thank you for your participation to Breaking Banks Europe. Thanks very much, Paolo. It has been really my pleasure and congratulations for your work. So let me invite the guest uh, to follow Breaking Banks, uh, going to our Breaking Banks page so that uh, you will always be in touch with our new episode. This was episode 78. We discussed fintech innovation at the intersection of things. There's always value at the intersection of things. And today we were at the intersection between the wealth of families and the needs of entrepreneurs. And that is a wrap. Thanks for listening to Breaking Banks Europe, a Provoke Media podcast in cooperation with Fintech Stage. Don't forget to tweet us out, shout out, or post to the team at Breaking Banks EU on Twitter. If there's something or someone you'd like to hear on our cast, let us know. See you next week on Breaking Banks Europe.